Christmas time, I have to tell you, I love Christmas. Who loves Christmas? Yeah, we love Christmas. I do. I mean, it just I love the lights. I love the trees. I love the fact that everybody's singing about Jesus, even atheists. Um, you know, like they're just like singing along else and they realize, oh, got me again. You know, that's awesome. I love that kind of thing. <clears throat> But what I most love about Christmas is the very essence of what it really is all about. It's this idea that God, in His grace and in His mercy, sends. It's all about the God sent. That's really what the story of Christmas is all about. This idea that God cares enough to send. And here's what I particularly love about having Christmas at this time of year and then getting ready to do what we're going to do as a church. Uh, Starting on January 1st, we're challenging everybody to engage in what we're calling Text 2012, right? So this is our big push to get everybody reading through the Bible in one year. And and the way we're going to do that is we're going to read chronologically. We're going to start in Genesis, work our way through, but in the historical timeline. So you'll get the big story of God, you'll get the big picture, and from that you will see what happened, what was going on, and therefore why God sends. Right? So I love the fact that we're going to get that big narrative and we're going to see the big picture, but I want to tell you, pastorally, caring about people and having a pastor's heart, the thing that always worries me about asking a church to read through the Bible is pretty much the whole Old Testament. All right? So... I mean, honestly, like, here's the thing. You're going to start on January 1, and you're going to start reading your Bible, and it will be Labor Day before you get to the New Testament. Labor Day. You're going to go through summer, still Old Testament. You're going to be like, is there an end to the Old Testament? Yes, there is, but it's going to take a long time to get through the Old Testament. And as you're going through it, you're going to have days where you go, wow, that's really mean. You're going to have days where you're looking at the Old Testament and you go, that is a confusing idea. This is a foreboding environment. In fact, a lot of people who really spend a lot in the Old Old Testament, a lot of time there, they go, that is a lot of stringent laws. It's a lot of harsh consequences. It seems to be at times a landscape of human suffering. And for the tender soul, they look at the Old Testament and they go, this is just a harsh realm and I'm struggling to see the mercy and the kindness and the love of God in this grand landscape of challenge and severity. You're like, this is a great Christmas message so far. But, but I think that generalization... Uh, of the Old Testament, when we read it sometimes, we go, wow, the God of the Old Testament was very, very different than the God of the New. I, I, I think that generalization uh, overlooks some rather important facts that, that, that sometimes we just don't center on. Like, like one of the things we assume is we, we watch all of that, that, that tragic stuff going on in the Old Testament. We sort of assume in the context of that that human beings are generally good. Especially back in that era, like we go, well, you know, they're probably no different than us. Well, well, really, if you begin to understand the background of the Old Testament, you'll realize that bad was normal. Bad was just normal. In fact, to be evil was to be patriotic. If you were a very patriotic person in the Old Testament, not of the nation of Israel, you're just a part of some other nation in the area, you were by nature evil. You did evil things. You thought in evil ways. Your propensity was toward evil all the time. And that was considered good citizenship. 
So when we then look at the Old Testament and look at these stories and see all that consequence and harshness, what we have to realize is that humanity was not generally good. Humanity was generally bad with these dispositions and propensities to do evil often. We were, in essence, a race of children, a race of very bad children. I'm not just talking like Lord of the Flies children. I'm talking like children of the corn children. I mean, we were really we were we were that bad. You know, we had that much evil at our disposal. And so when you read the Old Testament and you see the descriptions of humanity, you see we were just this island floating in space where all of the children were bent toward this harshness, this cruelty, this lawlessness, this rebellion, this need. In fact, Paul writes about us in this way in Galatians chapter 4. He says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better than slaves until they grow up. He says, even though they actually own everything their father had. He says, they had to obey their guardians until each reached whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of of this world. Now, when he says says the the basic spiritual principles, he's talking basically about the demonic world that was really in charge of a lot of things before Christ came. The demonic world spurred this ugliness and spurred this evil. And so that's why even when you think about the promised land that Israel was to go in and invade, and we look at those stories and go, wow, they said kill everybody in there. That's so terrible until you realize that those people in those places were evil. They were given over to the basic spiritual powers of the age. They were given over to doctrines of demons that said, you know what? You want to be blessed? Have a big orgy in the middle of town. If you get pregnant, kill those babies to your gods so they will show you favor. And everybody said, yes, that's good. Amen. That's evil. Those were the people. And Israel would grab onto those ideas and do those things and follow those gods and have that same kind of evil in return. So we were a lawless group of children. See, that's a part of the narrative. And so when you're reading the Old Testament and you see law and consequence, you see what God was doing. God was seeking to curb the darkest darkness in us with law and consequence and pointing out to us our deepest need. Our deepest need. To make this realization in us that we needed a Savior, not from among us, but that we needed a Savior to come from outside of us and dwell among us. Because among us, in and of ourselves, we were radically broken. But perhaps one would come who was untainted, unvarnished, unaffected by the conditions of the human race, right? This malevolent group of people that were bereft of seeking true goodness, right? I mean, like, like really, maybe one would step in and change the whole set of conditions. And that, my friends, is the Christmas story. It is the Christmas story. I, I started off with this sense of harshness, and, and right now I can imagine a little old lady leaning over her husband going, I don't think he knows the story of Christmas. This is, this is really, really bad. You know, but, but it's bad. 
It's bad. We can't just simply look at the manger and go, what a beautiful scene. We can't look at the starry night and the singing angels and not understand the background of the story. Why it was such dire need that one would come. If we don't see the ugliness of the human race that needed Christ, then the Christmas story is just just a nice little story. But it's only when we see the background. Only see the darkest night of the human soul. Only when we see a world that's overrun by godless solution does the Christmas story then make sense. In fact, Paul says there, right, that we were given over to the spiritual principles of this world. The demonic world was haunting the human race. But then in Galatians 4.4, and here in Galatians 4, it's one of the best passages, I think, on describing the birth of Christ outside of the Gospels. But it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent. So, humanity, sinful, wicked, broken, idolatrous, killing babies, killing each other, always at odds, always at war, trying to find solutions in and of themselves. No solution can be found. But when the fullness of time comes, God sent. Now, to to see how profound this idea that God sent is, you have to know where it hails from. Right? This, this simple little phrase, God sent. It's not the first appearance in the Bible. In fact, the very first appearance of this little phrase, God sent, is in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It says, Therefore, God sent. God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. To work the ground from which he was taken. The first time God sent was he sent us away from his presence. The first time God sent is he said, you have violated, you have disobeyed, you have done your own thing, you have just flipped your nose at me, you don't care, and so I am sending. I'm sending you away as a race. No, I made you as a race to love you, to care for you, to be with you. I gave you everything you want. I said, just don't do one thing. Just one tree. Don't eat from one tree. And we said, ah, no, no. But, but we're so curious. We want to know. We want to be like you in every way. We want equality with God. And so we took, we ate, we rebelled, and he sent. He sent us away. This is a part of the Christmas story. Now, eventually, God would send in other ways. He would send to a rebellious race an angel. Angel would come to Abraham and there would be a covenant. And then God would eventually send an ambassador. That ambassador would be Moses to God's people. And eventually God would send an administration. And the administration would be the law. And the law would say, uh, see that sin in you? You feel it. You know it. Because every time I tell you not to, you want to. Because that's what the law does. It draws out the sin in us. So God sent and sent and sent. But all of those other sendings were like bumpers to keep us going in the sovereign direction of where God was leading the race. Right? We were going everywhere, but the bumpers kind of kept us in line enough to get us to a destination that matters where God would send again. And so Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. God sent His Son. 
in the perfect moment of human history, Jesus comes into the ruins of Eden. Broken, dilapidated, not simply as an angel or an ambassador or an administrator, but God Himself, the invisible made visible, takes on human flesh, comes and dwells among us. The sovereign, ruling, King of kings, Lord of lords, who didn't have to do it, but chose to do it for this greater, glorious good. This God who literally can hold a hundred billion stars in His hand decides to come and inhabit the tender womb of a teenage girl. That is how God sent That is what this season is really all about. In fact, it says God sent His Son, born of a woman. Now, Mary was roughly 13 years of age, and in their culture, that was considered a woman, but barely. In our culture, we're shocked by that. In their culture, yes, she was a woman, but barely a woman. Now, in this, though, you've got to understand, man, it's like, uh, you know, God takes the most unlikely of individuals to change the world. So he finds this willing heart in this Jewish girl from this hardworking family in a blue-collar town. And he says, you know what? Uh, You have found favor with me. I'm going to do this through you. And then she, of course, is betrothed to a man named Joseph who was a a, a just man, a hardworking man, swung a hammer for an honest living. And, And God says, the two of them will be the ones that I come to to raise my son. And while Joseph was a just man and Mary was a favored woman, both were subject to the law. As much as they were just and favored, they were sinful. They needed Savior. They needed one to intervene and to step in. And so it says that God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Those under that administration that entices our sin. Those under those those 613 rules that no one could keep. He sends His Son to that as Savior. Redeemer. I love that scene. I do. I mean, you think about this, right? Here's that image, that, that one we all have at our house in, in you know, whatever displays we have with this little Jesus on the hay and everything else. And you look at that and you go, how precious, how dear, how quaint. But you have to look at that scene and go, man, again, at the darkest time of human existence, God sends to give one who would eventually grow up to redeem So there, when you look at the rock-hewn cradle, what you see is the faint shadow of a cross that crosses over that child and over that scene. Because that's really what it's all about. It's really this idea that this baby is a redeemer. A swaddled babe born to give. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9 says he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and he is the Prince of Peace. That describes his sovereign greatness manifest. But the prophet Isaiah will go on to say that how that sovereignty is displayed is that he is pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, 
beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. The Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. When we look at our nativities, we should look at that little child there in the center and say He will redeem, He will purchase us from our slavery, from our sins, from Satan, from our worst selves. And He will do so by being bound, beaten, engorged with our offenses, crushed under the severity of all of heaven's wrath so that we might be free. That's the scene in our nativities at home. That's the scene that we celebrate. The nativity is a silent night, but in that silent night, you can almost hear echoes of crowds that will eventually cry, crucify, crucify, crucify. Because that's what it's about. That's what he came to do. In fact, it's this ominous foreshadowing that Simeon speaks of with Mary when he says, a sword will will pierce your own soul, Mary. This baby that God has given to you is your Redeemer. And Joseph's Redeemer, and my Redeemer, and Anna's Redeemer here at the temple, and Israel's Redeemer, and the world's Redeemer, and He will redeem at a cost. And a sword will pierce you. But the reward will be great too. Paul goes on in Galatians. It says, He came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law. Why? So that we could be adopted as His very own children. See, that's profound right there because you know what? We are servants, but we're more than servants. And we're followers, but more than followers. And we are worshipers, but more than worshipers. What this says is that the child makes us children. Children. I mean, that's profound. It's not like we just adhere to a religion. It's not that we just have a God. But that God says, because I send my son for you to take your sin so you can be freed, you become my sons and daughters. You're my kids. That's more than just saying, do this or die. That means, you're my kids. I mean, everything I have, I, I give to you because you're my kids. Through the cradle to the cross, then from the cave that held him only three days, we became children. That's the Christmas story. And it says, because we are his children, God sent again. God sent us from his presence, but then God sent us his son. And as his son has brought us into God's presence through the gospel, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. I love that scene right there. I do. I love it. The same spirit that overshadows Mary to bring forth the son is the same spirit that now comes to indwell us. And give us this sonship, this sense of being his child. And from that we can say Abba, we can say Daddy, we can say deepest personal intimate relationship between father and parent. We can say, we need you Abba, you are our Abba. We can come to you as our Abba. And not a 70s band, I'm talking Daddy. He's our Daddy. 
See, I, I, I think that's profound. If you really think about the God of the universe wants that kind of union with us. I mean, that kind of union is deep. It's caring. It's personal. And so we go from sinners and slaves to saved to spirit-filled kids. In fact, Paul goes on to say, now you are no longer slaves, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. His heir. To share in Christ's glory. To sit with Christ on his throne. To savor the riches of Christ's inheritance with the saints. See, that's what it repeatedly says throughout the New Testament. This is what we have. Because 2,000 years ago, God said, now is the fullness of time, and I shall send. I will send my son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law, so that I might adopt them, not just as servants, but as children. And not just children, but children that receive a, a, a sense of um, completeness in me in where, which they are heirs of all things that I have. It all comes from a holy night when a young couple was displaced, weary, fearful, but faithful. And God looked upon them with favor. And from that, they looked upon their Savior and said, truly, this is the one that changes it all. And for us still today, when we uh, celebrate this season and when we go home and look at our nativity and we sing O Holy Night or any other song, it should be more than just a sense of good feelings and festive and this is the right kind of vibe of uh, the, 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 you know, kind of the time of the year. It should be more like an overwhelming sense of gratitude and a sense of union, and a sense of family. Because through that little one, from a cradle to a cross, and then from that, out of the cave alive, we are sons and daughters. Let's pray together. Jesus, <coughs> I thank you for the simple truth of what this season is all about. I don't think it's easy, but it's simple. It's simple to know that we were estranged and we were sinful. And boy, your word says that in bold color. And then at the right time you came. And I think that's still true, Jesus. I think in the lives of people, at the right time you come. I think in the life of every person in this room, there's these moments in which you go, this is the right time, and that's when you awaken that heart. That's when you get our attention. That's when we see our need. That's when you draw us in. I thank you for it always being at the right time. And Jesus, I pray for those in this room who today may be the right time for them to come to you for the first time. That they would say, I know I have been a rebel apart from you. I have been sinful apart from you. And I need you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. Because again, only one who comes from outside of us but to dwell among us is capable of doing that. Only you, Jesus, are capable of doing that. And so I pray that those who see their need for you will act on that and say, forgive me. Thank you for dying and rising. 
I give my life to you. If you're one of those in this room and that's your prayer, you make it your word, your way, he hears you and you are a child and you can say, Daddy. From estranged to Daddy. Jesus, I pray for the rest of us who are your church that we will always savor and love what the season's about and we will see the magnitude of sinners so richly forgiven by a God willing to take the punishment that we were due. Thank you, Jesus, that you came at the right time. Thank you that you gave yourself fully in the fullness of time. Thank you that we will dwell with you for all of time. We are your people. We are your brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. And we praise you. Thank you in your good and awesome name. Amen.